All right, Psalm 51, if you are new to us, we have been working through the book of Psalms, not all of them, but we've been taking a psalm a week through the summer, and uh, we've had a few other people speaking. We know that vacation time is here, and we are out and about through the weeks of summer, so we just wanted a series that you could jump in, jump out whenever you are here, and uh, we're glad you're with us. So today we are looking at Psalm 51. And then we're going to be also looking in the book of 2 Samuel. So if you have a Bible, I know there's some black hardcover Bibles in the pews you're sitting in. You can follow along. I'll be reading out of the NIV uh, translation. The words will be up on the screen as well. So I wanted to jump right in. Psalm 51, and I'm going to read verse 1 through 5 as we get started today. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So we're going to stop there. This is a psalm that David wrote. And when you read those first five verses, if you're like me, you start thinking, Man, what did David do, right? Like, what went on here? Look at what he's saying. I've sinned, have mercy, my, blot out my transgression, my iniquity. I know my sin is always before you. So something went down, right? Something happened. If you are a parent of children, and maybe, I mean, maybe you could relate to this. There were times when uh, our kids were younger and Christy was home full-time with the kids, and I would come home after work and I'd walk in, and you can just tell. Something has just gone down here, right? You know, you're like, I got to tread lightly. There's a kid, one kid's crying, one kid's standing in the corner, one kid's in the room, and Christy had that look on her face of just, you have no idea what you're walking into. You know something went down, something serious, and you're just trying to figure out, okay, who did what and what happened. That's kind of maybe what you feel or think when you read these verses out of Psalm 51. What did David do? What did David do to involve him to write or to uh, cause him to write these verses in Psalm 51? Well, here's what I love about Scripture and specifically the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is not historic. It's not a timeline of events. It's written by many different authors over a long period of time. And what it is is a uh, commentary, really, about events that are written in the Scripture. There's a lot of them that are prayers and songs of worship, but this one, and as long as many other ones, have something to do with an event that we can read about elsewhere in Scripture. And so today's event is in um, 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is when we read the story of what David did to cause him to write Psalm 51. And I love that about Psalms and about Scripture. It's not just the event but it's the emotion behind the event, the response to an event. And this is what Psalm 51 is. In particular, it's King David's response after he had really messed up. So if we're going to read what he did in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 11 and 12, there's just, I'll kind of uh, summarize the story, and then we'll read a few verses out of uh, 2 Samuel, chapter 12. This is when David was a king. He was the king of Israel. And the chapter, 2 Samuel 11 starts by saying, it was the time when kings and nations were at war. So the nation of Israel was at war with one of the surrounding nations, and all the leaders were out with the army fighting this battle. But David, the king, who normally would have been out fighting this battle with the army, was not with them. 
So there's obviously a statement there of sometimes where you're, when you're not where you're supposed to be or when you have too much idle time, kids, dads, moms, trouble seems to find you, right? That describes me as a teenager very well. And my mom would say that. Too much idle time, you know, trouble's going to find you. This is what happened to David. David is at home on the roof of his palace, and he looks over at a building next to him, and there is a woman bathing named Bathsheba, and David is interested, and he says, find out who that is. So people go and find out who this woman is, and they come back and say, that's Bathsheba. And then they say these words, which should have been enough for David. That's Uriah the Hittite's wife. That's Uriah's wife. And he's out fighting with your, battle, with your army right now. But instead, David, you know, throwing better judgment aside, invites Bathsheba over. They sleep together, and then Bathsheba gets pregnant. This is all happening in 2 Samuel 11. Um, some of you maybe don't read the Bible because you're like, it's so boring. I'd rather watch Desperate Housewives or whatever the equivalent is. That was a bad one. Yeah, it's a bad reference. But we have Desperate Housewives right here in 2 Samuel 11. It's pretty interesting stuff. It's a well-known story. So Bathsheba is now pregnant. And so David, rather than confess, he tries to find a way to cover it up to cover up his sin. And so he invites Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, back from the battle and says, Uriah, take the night off, go home to your wife, light some candles, play that special playlist that you play and see what happens, right? And Uriah, who's a man of character, says this, the army is all sleeping in tents tonight. The ark of the Lord is in a tent tonight. The battle is happening out there. How in the world could I go home and be at home when the rest of the soldiers and army are out in tents? So I won't do that. So David says, man, okay, plan A failed. So then the next night, David thinks, I know what will make it better. I'm going to get Uriah drunk first, and then we'll see what happens. And again, Uriah says, no, I will not do that. I'm going to stay faithful to my God. I'm going to be out, outside with the army, with the Ark of the Covenant. And so David realizes that this plan is not going to work to cover up his sin. And so David sends a message to the army commander the next day and says, here's what you need to do. Put Uriah in the front line where the, where the fighting is the worst, where the battle is fiercest, and then pull the other army forces back and Uriah will be killed. And that's what happens. And Uriah is killed in action and then David takes Bathsheba as his wife. So King David now has slept with another man's wife gotten her pregnant, and now he's had her husband killed in order to cover it up, and now he's married her. So this is the story, uh, one of the stories of David. Now, if you are familiar with Scripture, you know that David is known for something in Scripture. He is known as a man after God's own heart, okay? He's known as a man after God's own heart, and you read that, and you're like, what? That's how he's, ref like, He's a man after God's own heart, and he did that? Like, how in the world? Well, we're going to get there in a moment. Some of you are thinking here today, I've messed up too much, and God could never love me. This story alone should cause you to realize, I ain't that bad, right? I ain't that bad. And David was known after, as a man after God's own heart, and we're going to get there in a little bit. But then in the next chapter, chapter 12... God reveals all of this, all of this that's happened with David and Uriah and Bathsheba. God reveals that to the prophet Nathan. And God speaks to Nathan and says, you got to go talk to David. And so Nathan confronts David in chapter 12. Nathan confronts David with a parable. He tells this story to David, and David isn't 
bright enough at the moment to realize that Nathan is actually talking about him. Nathan tells David this story. Two men. There's a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man had many lambs, but the poor man only had one lamb. And he loved that lamb. It was all he had. And then when it came time to sacrifice a lamb to prepare for the feast, the rich man, rather than taking one of his many lambs that he had, instead took the one lamb from the poor man and sacrificed that one instead. And David, you know, unaware that he's, you know, the victim of some verbal trickery at the moment, he is enraged and furious. And he says that rich man should have everything taken away from him and it should be given to the poor man. And that rich man should be put to death. So David has fallen for the trap with Nathan. And then Nathan says these words in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 7. They'll be up on the screen. 2 Samuel 12, verse 7. This is Nathan's response to David. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his own wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And this is David's response in verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David's response was very simple. I have sinned against the Lord. And it's this response, it's this moment, and I don't know if it was right then or soon after that, but that is the moment that David pens the words found in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. I've sinned against the Lord is what David's response was. So I want us to look again at Psalm 51 and highlight a few points today. A few points now that we know the story, now that we know David's response. So look at verse 1 and 2 again. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. In those two verses, David is making a couple very, very important acknowledgments. He's acknowledging a couple very important things, and the first one is this. And we see it in 2 Samuel, and we see it in Psalm 51. The first one is this. He acknowledges, I have sinned. I've sinned. It's me. I've sinned. David didn't downplay it and say, you know, it's not that big of a deal. He didn't excuse it. He didn't make excuses for it. Just saying, you know, I kind of got caught up in a moment. It was just one day, you know, it's not that big of a deal. I was just trying to do my best. He wasn't upset about the consequences of his sin. He had said, I have sinned. It's me. I did it. It's not Bathsheba's fault. It's not Nathan's fault. It's not Uriah's fault. It's not the fault of the guy who designed and built the bathtub right next to my palace so that I could look in the window and see Bathsheba bathing. It's nobody's fault. 
It's my fault. It's my sin. I love David's response when confronted with his sin. I'm not going to excuse it. I'm not going to blame somebody else. I have sinned. I have sinned before the Lord. He owned it. He owned it. That's such a key thing. Whether your relationship with God or relationship with others, family, spouse, own your fault. We got way too much. It's not me. It's that other person. It's excuse. It's it's public perception management. It's spinning things so that it doesn't look as bad as what we did. It's excusing it and blaming other people. David's example is right here for us. Own your fault. Own your sin. In our house with our kids, and, um, and Christy and I, we, we try to do this, and when we're getting along really well, we do this. We own it when we've messed up. But with our kids, we're trying to teach them how to do this because with kids and middle school drama, they'll come home and, well, this person said this, and now I'm mad at this, and then I did this. And so we'll say, okay, well, what's your responsibility in it? But they did this, and they did this, and so our line, and, you know, this is, it isn't really a bad word, but we'll say it in our house. We'll say, own your crap. Own your crap. What you did, own it. Apologize for what you did. We can point fingers at all the other people, but look at what you did and apologize for that. Own it. And I love that example that David sets for us. I have sinned, and that's a key thing. You know what? That's a foundational thing to our relationship with God. If you want to have a right relationship with God, first step, I have sinned. That's it. you got to own it. There is mercy there. There is love and forgiveness there. But step one is for us to say, I have sinned. This is what David does. And the other thing, so the first thing that David acknowledges is, I've sinned. And the other thing that he acknowledges in, verse, in these first two verses is that God's love is unfailing. I have sinned, and then according to your unfailing love, he's acknowledging, God, your love is unfailing. It's enough to forgive my sin. Regardless of what it is, God's love is enough to forgive any sin. Later on in this chapter, David would write, Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. He acknowledges God's love is what we need to be forgiven and set free and to be made white as snow. It's God's mercy and love that is enough. I have sinned and God's love is unfailing. These are foundational things that we got to get as the church of Jesus Christ. And in this area, we often make one of two mistakes in regards to our own sin. Just think about your own life. Think about your own sin. We often make one of two mistakes, and the first is that we downplay our sin. It's not that big a deal. Everybody does this, right? Everybody does this. It's not a huge deal. I'm not as bad as this guy. I'm not as bad as King David. I haven't had anybody killed yet, you know? It's not that big of a deal. We downplay our sin. That's the first mistake we make. It's complacency. Maybe it's just, well, it's not a big deal now, and I'll just ask for God's forgiveness later. You know, not a big deal. We downplay it. That's a tragic mistake. And the second mistake we make is this, is that we think our sin is too big and that God can't forgive us. Either we downplay it and say it's not a big deal, or we make it too big and we say God would never forgive me. God can't use me. I'll never be forgiven and set free. I've done too many things wrong. Both of these are spiritually damaging to us, right? Both of these are spiritually damaging God's love and mercy is unfailing and complete, no matter what, amen? No matter what you've done, it is complete and unfailing, no matter what. But every sin is serious and so grievous that it required Jesus to die on a cross for it. 
So there is complete forgiveness, but that doesn't mean we approach our sin with complacency. It requires the death of our Savior to provide forgiveness for us. Both of those mistakes, complacency or saying that it's too much for God's mercy, are spiritually damaging, and we have to let those go today. So let's treat our sin with all seriousness, but let's never let that lead a single thought that we are beyond forgiving, that we are beyond love. The enemy is going to try to lie to you and deceive you and saying, you're too far gone. God, you've messed up too many times. God was able to forgive you for that same thing 1,000 times, but the 1,001st is too much. Those are lies. God's love is unfailing. The mercy of Jesus Christ is complete. We are never beyond saving and forgiveness. Amen? Let's jump ahead to verse 7 of Psalm 51. It says this, Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. I imagine hyssop was an essential oil of the day. It probably cost way more than it was worth. <laughs> Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart or a clean heart, as other translations would say, O oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Those are great verses, verse 7 through 12. David recognizes that our sin is before God and God alone. Against you and you only have I sinned. And that sin causes a separation. But he alone can make us clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Make me clean. God, you are the only one who can make me clean. Create in me a pure heart. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Don't cast me out of your presence or take away your Holy Spirit. Again, this is David acknowledging our sin is serious. The consequences are such that it, it involves separating us from God. When we sin, there is separation from God. And David is saying, I want you to make me clean and bring your mercy and your forgiveness again so that my relationship with you and the Holy Spirit and that, that relationship, that being in your presence will be there and will be right. And I love the line that he says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. David is saying, help me remember what it was to first be saved. What joy I felt when I was first forgiven and free. Help me to remember that. That joy that comes when knowing that your past is forgiveness. Maybe forgiven. Maybe some of you have that moment, that salvation story where it was a definite moment. You have the, I got saved at camp on this day, and I remember exactly what happened. And you can remember the joy in that moment. Maybe it was later in life. Maybe there was a moment when, I mean, I imagine, Dennis, you've had that moment. I've talked to Dennis about this. He lived a life that was in need of the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, as we all have. Dennis can look back and say, restore to me the joy when he's facing struggles. He can look back and remember. I remember what it felt like that first time where I felt forgiven of all the things that I had done. That first time I experienced the joy of salvation. David is saying and praying to God, restore to me that joy, that joy of my salvation. Help me to remember what it feels like to be free and forgiven. That joy that comes knowing my past is forgiven. There's joy there, right? There's joy there in salvation. Often Christians aren't the best examples of living with joy, but we should. Because of this fact, we are forgiven and set free. And it's that joy that should be a motivator for us 
such a key thing for us when we can just sit and remember, what did Jesus do for us? That should be a cause of joy. That should be a, a moment where we have that joy restored no matter what we are facing. And then as a result, we say, well, yeah, this is my motivation now to live for righteousness and purity because of that joy. This is why we repent when we sin and why we're devoted to serve him and devoted to serve others. It's because of the joy of being set free and saved. Amen? How could I not love others? How could I not forgive others? How could I not repent when I am faced with my own sin? How could I not run this race of faith with everything I have? How could I not lift up my hands in worship and surrender to Him? It's because of the joy of salvation. Of course we're going to do all these things because of what Jesus has done for us. Some of you today may need to just have that moment where you remember the joy of salvation. You're getting bogged down with the stress of other things that are way down the list of importance compared to the joy of being saved by the power of Jesus Christ, the joy of salvation. You mean to remember that today. This is not a burden, this life of faith. It is a life of joy. So let's guard against complacency or familiarity when it comes to mercy and salvation, right? Restore that joy, Lord. That's our prayer today. Then in verse 13, David says this, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, so that sinners will turn back to you. And I have that in my Bible underlined and circled the word then. Then, I, and I, uh, I put an accent there, then I will teach transgressors your ways. Then and only then will I be able to teach transgressors your ways, is how I read it. David is saying this, a right heart, no matter what you're involved in, ministry, in life, in family, in whatever you're doing in your career, a right heart is priority number one. David is saying this, I need to be right with you. I need to have my heart right. Then I can do all the things. Then I can teach transgressors and sinners their ways. Then I can disciple others or serve others. Then I can do all these things. But a right heart is priority number one. Before we minister, before we serve, before we do anything for God, our heart must be right. God created me a clean heart, and then I will do the work you have me to do. And David states this further in verse 16 and 17. He says this, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. David is saying, what good are sacrifices and offerings if your heart isn't right? This is what God is teaching us through this scripture. And this is the Old Testament where people would be required, the Israelites would be required to bring sacrifices and offerings in order to, you know, have that fellowship with God. And David is saying, what good is any of that if my heart isn't right? God, is t God teaches this throughout the scripture. God would much rather have your heart right than your sacrifices. And in our day today, it's God would much rather have your heart right than all your church attendance, giving in the offering, volunteering in kids' church, all the good deeds you can do, all the ways that you serve your community. More than that, God is saying, I want your heart right. I want that right first. Then you can do all of these things. What good is church attendance if your heart is far from God? God would want you to have your heart right, and then all of these things come after that. What good is church attendance and sacrifices and offerings if there's unconfessed sin in your life? 
And we see this through, this isn't just a Psalm 51 thing. God says this throughout the Scripture. There's times in the Old Testament when people were in the temple offering worship, and God speaks to them, the Spirit of God speaks to them and say, what are you doing here on your knees bowing in worship? Get up, get out there and make it right. That injustice, make it right. And then come back and worship. Your heart is not right. Get up and make it right, and then come back and worship. Isaiah 29, and then it's quoted again in Matthew chapter 15. God says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus quoted it in Matthew, talking about the religious leaders who are doing all the things right on the outside. These people honor me with their lips. They're doing all the behaviors right, but their hearts are far from me. So the message and the lesson that we're getting out of Psalm 51, one of them is this. Skip all the religious behavior and religious pretense and going through the motions if your heart is not right. And get your heart right before God. And that is what David did when he said, I've sinned and I need your mercy. I've sinned against you and I'm not going to excuse it. I need your mercy. And that is how our heart becomes white as snow. That is when our heart becomes right and that relationship with God is restored. Lay out your heart before God. And this is a message for all of us today. Stop excusing your sin. Stop deflecting and blaming other people or hiding it or covering up or just saying, if I go to church enough times, I'll be good enough. That's not what it's about. Lay your heart before God and cry out to Him and say, God, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. I try to do that every day in part of my prayer time. That confession moment is such a key thing. God, search my heart today. Have mercy on me today. I want this to be right before I do anything with my family, with my job, with my ministry. Lay your heart out before God. Cry out to Him and say, Have mercy on me, God, according to your unfailing love, according to the unsurpassed mercy and love of Jesus Christ. Make me new and clean. And I believe that this is why David is known as a man after God's own heart. He certainly didn't act like it in Psalm, in 2 Samuel, right? It's not like David wasn't without flaw and fault and sin. I mean, he messed up huge, and this isn't the only time David messed up. So how is he known as a man after God's own heart? Was he perfect? No, certainly not. We read that today. But when confronted in his sin, he didn't excuse it, he didn't deflect it, and he didn't delay. He simply acknowledged that, God, I've sinned. I've sinned. I need your mercy. He quickly acknowledged that it was his sin against God. And David was the king, right? David was in a position of ultimate authority. He could have said, yeah, I took Bathsheba as my wife, you know, what up? I can do whatever I want. Uriah is going to have to go find himself a new wife. I'm the king. When confronted by Nathan, David could have said, how dare you question me? I'm your authority. I'm your leader. How dare you question me? I'm the boss. And maybe some of you have worked for bosses who are like that. Don't question me. I'm the boss. You question people who are beneath you, right? This is not the example that David sets, and ultimately we see that as the example that Jesus lays. It doesn't matter your position of leadership or authority. When confronted in your sin, you own it. You own your crap, right? Own it. Own your sin. How do you respond when you are confronted? How do you respond when you're confronted? Do you have others in your life who have that voice to confront you? Nathan, this, Nathan's kind of a lost character in that story. He had to have the courage and the obedience to God to go to the king and confront the king on his sin. There is other stories when the prophets did that to the kings and the prophets did not turn out well. They got put to death because of them confronting the king. 
Do you have people in your family? As your family, is your spouse able to say, hey, here's an area that I'm concerned about? And is your response defensiveness, deflection, excuse, blame, fighting back? Or is your response humility and saying, God, search my heart. I've sinned against you. Are you a leader in a company or in your place of business? Are you able to have other people who would be beneath you on the corporate ladder challenge you and confront you? Is your heart soft and humble so that you can have people confront you with different things and have you not deflected or excuse it but simply say you're right? You want to know what a very strong key to a healthy marriage is? Is just simply saying, you know what? You're right when your spouse comes and challenges you on something. When Christy and I do that, just seems that marriage works great. You're right. I'm sorry. And when I decide to be more of a dummy and say, well, what do you mean that? It's not me. Or how about you when you do all these things? Or how about this? Or don't, don't blame me for this. Well, things just don't go as good, right? There's very practical lessons here in your relationships with your kids. We try to model this with our kids when, when we as the parents mess up. We say to our kids, you know what? You're right. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? When we're times of praying, we're saying, God, forgive me for this lousy attitude I've had. We need to have hearts that are soft, open to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and open to the voices of other people saying, hey, here's a concern. Here's something you're doing that I'm concerned about. Here's something you did that really caused hurt in me. And we be open to that to say, you know what? You're right, and I'm sorry. That is the start of so much healing. It's not only a way to keep our relationship with God right. It does so much healing work for our relationship with one another. You're right. I didn't know it. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Those words are not hard to say. We should practice right now. But sometimes in the emotion of the moment, it's like acid in our mouths, right? They're like, I refuse to say that you're right because I'm so mad at you right now. No, we need to have hearts of humility that are teachable, that are open to God and say, you know what? You're right. You're right. In your marriage, in your family, in your workplace, in school, Whatever position God has you in, are you open and humble? It's this humility and willing to confess. It's this longing to make sure that our hearts are right. It's that characteristic in us that God's going to look at and say, I can use that. I can use that. It's why David was known after, as a man after God's own heart because God said, I can use him because he's open. He's not proud. He's humble. When confronted in sin, he confesses. God can say to you, I can use that. I can use that. He's, he's teachable. She's teachable. He and she is humble. They're open to be corrected. That's going to cause us to grow. Last week we talked about this in the psalm we were studying, and I mentioned that you're never going to regret being open to God. You're never going to regret moments when you say yes to God. You're going to look back and say, look at how God did that. He's going to use you in amazing ways. But the first step to that is making sure your heart is right with Him. Amen? Making sure you're open and humble. You confess your sins. This is the foundation of everything else. Everything that God wants to do in your life, this is the foundation. All the other, sta all the other stuff, the battles, the victories. In David's case, it was leading a nation. All of the other stuff doesn't matter if the heart is not right before God. So today, I want us to do this. I just want us to lay our hearts before God and be completely honest. And here's the deal with God. He already knows. It's not like you're hiding something from God, and God's going to say, what? I had no idea. You know, God's God. He knows already. But there is something profound when it's us acknowledging it, admitting it, confessing it. So I want us to do this. Let's just bow our heads for a moment.
And there's going to be a couple moments of response here. And again, this is just between you and God. Nobody's looking around. And um, this is just a, a moment between you and God. If you are in a spot where you're just, you're in need of his mercy, this might be a first time decision for you saying, God, I'm a sinner and I need your salvation. Or this might be an area of complacency in your life where you're saying, God, I need your mercy in here. And really, and that applies to all of us. But if that's you today and you just want to put up your hand to say, God, I need your mercy and your love and your forgiveness, would you do that just now? Just put up your hand. God, there's an area of my life where I need you to invade my heart, wash me, and make me whiter than snow. Yeah, thank you for your hands. Yes. Yes, God, make me white as snow. There's areas where I just need forgiveness. I don't want to get complacent in my sin. So, God, for these people, I just pray that you would reveal your love and your faithfulness. Lord, thank you that you do that to us over and over again. It's mind-blowing at times when we think about your mercy, how in our human strength we fall so short at giving mercy to others, but yet you, with us, it's unfailing. Mercy and grace. Thank you, Lord. The other area of response today, I just want you to think of this. Maybe there's, maybe there's something in your life or someone in your life that God is pointing out to you right now that you need to make it right. You need to make it right. Maybe it's someone you need to go confess something to. Maybe it's another person that you need to go and repent to. Or maybe it's someone that God is speaking to you to go challenge somebody and say, I know I'm supposed to speak up and confront this person. And maybe it's that you need to go to someone that you have wronged and say, I, I can't keep going through this religious life anymore without my heart being right, without this issue being resolved. And God's pointing out somebody in your heart or in your life that you need to go to and make it right. We're just going to allow the Holy Spirit to reveal that to us right now. Just be open to him. Say yes to him. Be obedient. God, whatever you want me to do, whoever you want me to talk to, I'm open I'm humble, I'm willing to grow and be used, I'm open to confess and to, be, to admit my fault. Whatever you want to do, God, do that in my heart this week. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Our prayer today, God, for each of us, is the prayer that David said, the prayer that David prayed, create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. We want to be pure vessels. So do that work in us, we pray. And we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.